If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Could a Roman woman lead an army? What was it like to give birth in the ancient world? And how could women in the Roman Empire gain financial independence? To answer your questions on Roman women for our latest Everything You Want to Know episode, I spoke to Professor Kate Cooper, an expert in gender and women's experience in the Roman world at Royal Holloway, University of London. Thank you so much for coming on the History Extra podcast, Kate. It's lovely to have you here to talk all about Roman women. And we've had loads of listener questions in for this episode. So thanks to everybody that submitted them. I wanted to start us with a question from Muffin288, who's one of our followers on Instagram. And they ask, what sources can we use to understand the experiences of women in ancient Rome? Thank you, Muffin. That's a great question. There are two ways to answer it. One is to say that how we know what we know about ancient Rome generally is a really interesting mix. We've got bits of material coming through from archaeology, objects from the ancient household. We've got grave inscriptions. Uh, We do have, in some cases, specific objects that we know to have been used by a certain person. But the other thing I want to mention is that a lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from sources that were written in the ancient period, but then were copied by medieval libraries, usually by uh, medieval monks. And what they thought was interesting and important was really different to what we want to know. And because medieval monks, first of all, they weren't that interested in women. You, you know, in, and actually they were in a situation where their supervisor was were telling them not to think about women. So, you know, the library is going to reflect that, going to have reflected that. So when we think about 
women themselves, we have very few sources, some but few, that were, for example, written by women that then get transmitted. We've got some poetry uh, by, by people like Sulpicia. We've got some writings that have come through archaeology from Roman Egypt. We've got letters written by women and, um, and documents relating to their lives, things like shopping lists. We've got wet nurse contracts where one woman has hired another woman to nurse her baby as a kind of low-paid caring job. Um, so in that sense, we've got these very, you know, very nitty-gritty bits of information about women's lives. Here in Britain, we've got some wooden tablets that were used as everyday writing that have survived from a Roman fort in the north of England, Vindolanda, near Hadrian's Wall. And in one case, we've got a couple of of bits of text from a woman called Claudia Severa around the year 100 AD. And one of them is an invitation from from Claudia to another woman to her birthday party. It basically says, oh, please, please, please come. It's going to be so much more fun if you're there. You know, so it's just this tiny little bit of of voice uh, that lets us imagine all of the other things we've lost, which is sort of bittersweet. So tiny, amazing snapshots into women's lives then. So next, we've got a question from Aloisa on Instagram that I think really gets to the heart of the issue here, which is what was the state of gender equality in ancient Rome? It's such an interesting question. At one level, I think they would see how women should live and how men should live as very different. And I'll come back to that. But I think there was a shared sense of what it was to be a Roman, being a person who was fearless. And, you know, women could be fearless in different ways to men, but but their fearlessness was still uh, was still recognized and celebrated. Uh, you know, so in that sense, I think there was a sense of what the Roman values were that valued male and female as two sides of the same coin. Having said that, I think uh, women's experience was very, very, very different to men's. But before I say anything more, I've got to mention the fact that it was a society that was very, very highly divided by status. So being a citizen woman versus being a slave for example, it was hugely different. You're almost talking about two different species. So in that sense, um, we have to take class into account really importantly. If you were free in as a woman in Rome, you were a citizen and you had the same rights as men, with very few exceptions. There, um, One was that you couldn't vote or hold political office. So the actual work of politics was seen as a male game. But on the other hand, there were issues in private life where there were there were norms and expectations, and in some cases laws, where women had to relate differently to other members of the family, for example, than men did. Uh, women had a different kind of guardianship than, than young men did, for example, in Roman law. Um, and slightly higher guardianship, slightly more protection, partly because of a, of a fear that people could take advantage of them. So it wasn't only about controlling them, although I think it did have an element of control. Women citizens have a position that is in many ways more like their male counterparts than we would expect. For example, Roman women 
would be able to inherit property in their own name. A woman could raise an army if she had the money to hire private soldiers, for example, uh, even if she wasn't expected to go out in battle herself. And of course, in some cases in in the provinces, we do see women in in warfare. Um, I think the thing that's most interesting is the fact that in marriage, Roman women for the period of the Roman Empire women actually had more power in many ways than women in England or the U.S. did in the 19th century. Women, even though they couldn't vote, they had property, they had legal independence from their husbands, they weren't just subsumed into the household of their husbands in the way that you see, for example, in 19th century novels. You know, so in that sense, there is an independence that Roman women of property had in terms of controlling their own property, which is something that modern women might find really quite surprising. Bookworm on Instagram has asked what were seen as women's value to society or their role in society. So you mentioned fearlessness was a quality that was valued. What other qualities were valued in women? I think our stereotype of Roman women focuses on the idea that they should be pure and chaste, that they should uh, cultivate modesty and a sense of untouchability, uh, particularly uh, sort of sexual purity, for example. And that certainly was a crucial ideal in the Roman world. But I think if you were going to pick one one value, it would be the value of honor understood not only in the sense of of modesty and purity, but also in the sense of of strength and strength of character. So in, in that sense, I think we aren't looking at a society that asked women to be wallflowers. The critical thing that is different between ancient Rome and a modern society is almost certainly the centrality of bearing children in Roman ideas and ideals. And that is something that was valued very highly. It was seen as literally the the sort of starting point of the whole system because Rome was a society that was struggling to grow demographically. It's really touch and go whether a child will survive to its first birthday and then it's touch and go again whether it will survive to its 10th birthday. So in a sense, in order to have a, you know, in order to have a population that was replacing itself or even growing, women had to be having four, five, six children each because so many of the children were dying. And it was so dangerous to have children. And as a result, people really understood that bearing children was difficult, dangerous, powerfully important work. And in that sense, I think there there may be a way that it was valued more positively than in our world, perhaps. I think there's also a way that a lot of the other values around women's role are connected to that obsession with maintaining the birth rate. Things about modesty and and sexual purity and chastity, for example. And remember, chastity isn't not having sex at all. It's not having sex with the wrong people. 
And, you know, and so, you know, you wanted Roman to, women to be fertile, but you were worried about whose children those children were. So in that sense, particularly in a system where a husband didn't control his wife legally, he, that control was still with her own family. Um, that meant that there was this constant anxiety about whether when a family married one of its sons to the daughter of another family, trusting that the children born by that daughter were really the heirs to the to the husband's family, meant that there was an obsession with sexual purity. So, for example, a, a for a first marriage, a Roman woman of high status was expected to be a virgin. Everybody knew that, that slaves and women of lower status couldn't control whether or not men were, were uh, trying to sleep to them. So in that sense, in a strange way, this obsession with sexual purity was part of the social class issue, if that makes sense. Well, we've had a couple of questions in specifically about marriage. Ali Louisa has asked how young were women typically when they got married? And Emily Gascoigne has asked how much freedom did they have in choosing who to marry? Those are fantastic questions. The first thing we need to understand is that marriage in the Roman world was understood first and foremost as a contract that was about producing heirs for the for the husband, for the you know the father of the of the family, and. This doesn't mean that those are the only children that that man is going to have because male sexuality was dizzyingly polymorphous in the sense that there weren't strong norms against men sleeping with low-status women as and when going to prostitutes. There were some philosophical ideas that it was better for a man to be sexually moderate, but there wasn't a law or a strong norm that said that he was socially excluded if he was seen to be sort of wildly carousing with low-status women. And as a result, a man could have literally dozens of children who weren't the children of his married partner, the, the mother of his heirs. And so marriage is really about creating heirs for a man who might have children already, but who doesn't have children, who have that right to succeed him in his property. And that's really the critical thing. Though the relationship between a man and his legal wife was it was a right that was only allowed to citizens to um, to produce heirs whether to whether as the father or as the mother so a man couldn't marry a woman who wasn't a citizen he couldn't marry um, a slave for example or even a foreigner who hadn't been given citizen rights so in in that sense you know from the man's perspective looking for a wife was was about looking for someone who had this capacity to give birth to roman citizens from the woman's point of view it was trickier Women were seen as pawns that their family could place on the game board in order to put the family in a stronger position by creating allegiances with other families. This could be in a high-level political context, or it could be in the level of a village where the butcher wants to marry his daughter to the baker. 
You know, it's re- it's really um, at every level of society, this thing of networking and people trying to create these allegiances was critical to the sort of web of social fabric. Something that to us is kind of creepy is that the the women in these marriages could be, for us, really terrifyingly young. The age of consent was 12 for girls and 14 for boys. On the whole, women seem to have married in their late teens and early 20s rather than right at 12. But one of the unfortunate exceptions is that the higher you go up the social ladder where the girls are expected to inherit big money from their fathers and mothers, there the women are often spoken for in childhood and they're often married right at 12. Um, Even more unpleasant from our point of view is that the bride is sometimes sent to be raised by her mother-in-law rather than staying with her own parents through her childhood. This is just at the really aristocratic levels for the most part. Of course, further down the social ladder, right at the bottom, you've got enslaved women who are not eligible for marriage at all, except in the very rare case where a freed person decides to free them for the purpose of marriage, which is a technical possibility in the Roman system. But those young women often, as children, are already being sexually exploited. So in that sense, um, there are not the norms against child sexual exploitation that we have in the modern world, and there are certainly no norms against the sexual exploitation of slaves, be they male or female. So in this system, women didn't have much control then, to answer that question about control in the marriage market? Technically, a young woman could refuse to give consent, but it was expected that she would give consent except in rare cases. The idea was that her parents had the duty of knowing best and acting in her interest. And um, really, she could only legitimately refuse a match if she was able to bring forward information that would that would Uh, persuade people beyond her parents that the proposed husband was of bad character, he was a criminal of some kind, there was some way that the family would be put in jeopardy. It wasn't enough that he wasn't nice or that he was too old or that certainly that she wasn't in love with him, just wasn't, you know, wasn't a factor. Another thing that's quite brutal is that although, although young women In principle, a 12-year-old could marry a 14-year-old. In practice, the average age of marriage was in the mid to late 20s rather than the late teens. But some, in some cases, the marriages are happening with far greater disparity. So Cicero, for example, at the height of his career, married a 15-year-old. Uh, I know of another case of a, a Roman girl in Milan who at 10 was betrothed to somebody who was 33. And, you know, and the, and the man complained about the fact that they couldn't get married for two years. Um, because she was underage, you know, and so you have all of these kinds of of situations that to us are almost unimaginable, but they were taken as absolutely normal in the Roman world. This leads me on to a question from Emily Middleton on Instagram, who's asked whether women had more rights when they were married or they were single. That's a really interesting question. We do have some cases where 
women found themselves in a a difficult and dangerous situation once they married. On the whole, marriage shouldn't have made them lose legal rights. But the fact is that particularly if you're moving to a distant location, and remember in in the Roman situation where they don't have telecommunications, they don't have uh, automated uh, transport, even having your parents be 15 miles away is all of a sudden a very serious thing. And we do have uh, enough evidence of women finding themselves isolated in a household where they're being mistreated that it's really kind of shocking. Um, We have a case from the second century uh, AD uh, of a young woman who marries the sort of the, the richest kind of tycoon of the uh, of the Roman world, Herodes Atticus, who's, you know, he's a philosopher, he's friends with Marcus Aurelius, it's all looking really good. And not only does he abuse her violently, but she dies from the abuse. And the only way we even know about it is because her brother happened to be consul and, um, and brought her husband to court. And it's just because of the the high status of the two men involved that the the fact that he killed his his wife, you know, even came to light in a way that anybody would hear about. Uh, the woman uh, was named Regilla, and I, I I sort of feel like we should mention her name. Um, but it's you know, but it, in a sense, if you think of someone at that high level of society being in a situation that was vulnerable. That's the kind of thing that we have to be aware, not only in the Roman world, but in in other pre-industrial societies, of this sense of the, the lack of communication with the family that, in principle, is the family that you're accountable to. A, a Roman woman is still under the legal authority of her family, and she also has the right to protection from her own family. But if her own family aren't there, it in principle, it can be a great thing, but in practice, it might not mean anything. Yeah. So to move us on now, we've got a question from Katie's Table on Instagram. Katie's Table has asked, did girls receive any education? They did. The um, The general understanding is that the, um, that the school's that children went to up until around the age 11 was available to both girls and boys. Uh, we've got we've got numerous cases in Roman literature where a father talks with pride about his daughter's learning or a father writes to his daughter or a female character in a in a story is is represented as reading or reading and writing or being interested in literature. So we know that at elite levels, certainly women are very involved with education, at, you know, at least in many families. Remember, though, it's a society that has maybe a 15% literacy rate. So there are a lot of people, male and female, who are not literate. It's probably the case that disproportionately fewer women were literate than men, probably at every level, but particularly in the slave and working classes. And I think another thing that's interesting to remember is that there's a whole kind of literacy that that is sort of functional literacy. So, for example, somebody who's working for a, a taverna might be able to, you know, 
read the bills of lading that come in with the wine when it's delivered, for example, but wouldn't be able to read Virgil or poetry or, you know, in that, in that sense. So, so I think there's lots of different kinds of literacy and women are not completely as strongly represented as men, but on the other hand, they're holding their ground. Mm, interesting. I, th- I think that might surprise a few people. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A member of the Roman imperial family, Agrippina, for example, who, uh, you know, who accompanies her husband on his command. And, you know, and that's where her, her son becomes so beloved by the, uh, by the army that he gets the nickname Caligula, Little Boots. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Many of our listeners have asked about daily life, women's daily lives. And I think that, you know, I want to give Samantha Emmerich some credit here because Samantha Emmerich has said, what can you tell us about daily life, but how did it differ for women in different classes? And as you say, that's something that we always need to kind of have at the forefront of our mind when we're talking about this, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely. A huge number of Roman households were actually combining different levels of social class status in the same household, largely because of slavery. But there's also another factor, which is that the way the Romans organized their businesses, often a family business would have the same account book and the same physical location for, as it were, the the family activity, the cooking and cleaning and child rearing, and the actual business. You've got people who are essentially living under the roof of their employer, whether as a slave or as a low-status servant or as a low-status employee, for example, of a weaving workshop. Um, You know, and we have lots of productive activity going on in the household. I mentioned weaving because spinning wool and weaving wool are considered to be the daily activity of most women in the Roman world. And performing wool work was considered to be a highly valued and morally ennobling kind of work, partly because it required so much patience. 
uh, which is interesting. And so, for example, uh, a woman of higher status would be admired if she wore a cloak that was woven from wool that she had spun herself, and the wool was seen to be evenly spun, and the weaving was seen to be, you know, even and tidy. That would be a sign of her virtue because it showed that she was patient and careful and painstaking. So, so those kinds of issues are really fascinating in terms of thinking about what the interaction between different social classes was, because we have a number of sources that talk about women of of rich households sitting with lower status women and slaves in their household and all kind of spinning and weaving together. It's interesting what you say about um, wealthy elite women being respected for weaving wool. Were they expected to get involved in other domestic labour? It's a great question. For the most part, elite women are seen as managers of the establishment that they uh, that they live in, you know, managers of the domestic side. But they that doesn't necessarily mean direct physical labor. It really um, it really depends in that, uh, you know, a very, very rich household, uh, you know, there are going to be cooks doing the cooking and launderers doing the laundering, and these people may be slaves, but they're still going to be highly skilled. Lower down the social s- scale in, you know, in villages where you have households that have one or two slaves, then the owners of the slaves, um, what we Americans call enslavers, uh, are going to be working alongside the slaves, you know, both both men and women, and it's going to be a much more sort of mixed situation. So, so again, this one really depends on social status. And I just want to throw in a quick question now, because if you look for the most searched for questions around Roman women on the internet, there's a depressing amount of the same question that comes up again and again. The top 10 questions are essentially all varieties of this question, which is how did ancient Roman women dress? At one level, there's a simple answer, at least for the classes that get memorialized in art and sculpture. So, you know, we have mosaics, we have frescoes from places like Pompeii, and then we have lots of statues. And all of those, when they're representing women who have the status of a matrona, a a respectable married citizen woman, they all have the same outfit. And that has two components. There's a stola, which is basically uh, a, a garment that has two pins at the shoulders to 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 let it kind of fall down over the body and then there are two belts that kind of cinch it in the middle um and there are various ways that you can decorate a stola but you know but it's a pretty simple garment and it's frankly it's easy to you know it's easy to make at home um and then the and then the second thing is the pala which is kind of a sort of sari like shawl that gets draped over the head um people used to think because the roman sculptures had have so little uh paint left on them you know the paint all kind of has has worn away over the years people used to think that these that these garments were all white but in fact 
they um, they could be of a variety of colors, you know, any color that you can make out of, of out of natural dye. So red, yellow, blue. Uh, if you were of the super elite, it could be purple, but purple is reserved for uh, in the in the period of empire. It's reserved for the um, imperial family, and uh, and certain purple decorations can be worn by senators and and members of senatorial families. Obviously, in the in the uh, countryside, it's probably going to be. Um, it's probably not going to be dyed, and so it's going to be more, you know, linen-colored, oatmeal-colored, these very sort of, you know, we would now see these as very arty, neutral tones, but in fact, it was just not having to get into dyeing. Yeah, fantastic. Everybody who's Googled that um, will be very happy, so thank you. Next, we have a question from Katie's Table again, who's asked about rituals around childbirth. So I wonder if we could broaden that out a little bit to just talk about women's experiences of pregnancy and childbirth in this period. Thanks. I think the most important thing to uh, to consider about women's childbirth is uh, midwives, that there's really, there's a sort of women's culture around childbearing that kind of brings together the women of the family, particularly the older women, um, and the, you know, and women who have a sort of speciality of caring for women's issues, because there's a really strong sense of modesty of women not wanting to be seen by a male doctor. So in that sense, I think, I think thinking about midwives is important. Midwives had um, a variety of bits of lore at their disposal. One of the most important things that they that they had was um, just the very, very simple, basic attention to the physical person in in pre-modern medicine and even in modern nursing. Things like getting enough rest, getting enough fluids are actually critical to health, and they're even more important in a health system that doesn't have a lot of highly functional medicines. Having said this, there was a whole herbal lore. So there were uh, things like verbena was used for relief during labor, and there were other herbs that, that could be brought into play in that way. There were also a whole series of practices that are, to, from our perspective, seen more in the light of religion and magic. So, for example, you would bring offerings to the gods. At times, you would say special prayers and then magical incantations. You know, so in that sense, there's really is a sense that um, this is something that human beings can't control and it's fortune rather than, uh, you know, fortune rather than human effort that's going to make the final decision. So now we've got a few more questions on the opportunities available to women in terms of employment and also financially. So the possumator um, has asked whether women could live independently of a male head of household or whether they could gain any kind of financial independence. Absolutely. And something that's super interesting, and this, again, comes from a society where wealth that is 
accumulated over generations and handed down through families is really important here because the Romans didn't have the primogeniture system that gives all of the wealth to the first son. Instead, they have a partable inheritance system where the norm is that the wealth of a woman or man will be divided equally among his or her children when they die. Yeah, so daughters daughters have the same share as sons in principle. In practice, the parents can fiddle it a little bit to choose whichever child they want to, and in some cases they do that with sons, but but not exclusively. The other confusing element is that sometimes daughters' share is advanced to them in the form of dowry. So in that sense, it looks as if they're getting less money later when the parent when the parent dies because the money has been already invested ahead of time, if that makes sense. Um, and the dowry remains the daughter's property, but it's under the control of the husband during the marriage, and he has usufruct of it as long as he maintains her in the style to which she was accustomed. In other words, if you know if he can find a way to to come away with extra money having maintained her properly, he can keep the change. Uh, but the, but there is this idea that daughters and sons in principle should be treated fair equally, um, and this means that you have you get heiresses who really, uh, particularly if usually they're widows rather than simply teenagers who refuse to marry because families tend to be really pushing the daughters into marriage. But remember, with the older husbands, there are going to be a lot of widows, and if you think about somebody who's seventeen and marries a forty-year-old. You know, given that the Roman life expectancy is not that much above 40, you know, she can look forward to a happy long widowhood as long as she doesn't die in childbirth, which is obviously a real problem. And this means if they had property to begin with, things are looking pretty good. And you have some really interesting cases of this. There's a case in the New Testament, Lydia the Purple Seller. Many people will recognize that name. Who's Lydia? She is, uh, she comes from Thyatira, uh, a, um, a city on the west coast of Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, which is known for linen production. And a purple seller is a person who runs an import-export business trading the hugely expensive shells of the murex, which is a, a form of shellfish that whose shell produces this marvelous purple dye that was special for the imperial family and the Senate. So if you're a purple seller, it means you've got a big, big business going on. Lydia is a purple seller, and famously, according to the Book of Acts in the New Testament, she um, she meets the Apostle Paul and is persuaded by him that Christianity is going to be the coming thing, and she converted with all of her household. Well, if you're running a big business and you and you have your own household, it's you know it's like a mafia don having his following. That's a big pyramid of people, and it's very clear that there's no husband anywhere. There probably had been one, but he died. So being a wealthy widow might be one of the best positions you could have in Roman society as a woman. If you're looking for a quiet life, being a rich widow might not be the best because you're going to have a lot of people trying to get a hold of your money. Having said that, for a woman who's a kind of dynamic go-getter, it's a great position as long as she, you know, as long as she doesn't mind having to deal with all those men trying to get a hold of her inheritance. Uh, but I think it's I think we really we underestimate the amount of independence that that some women 
were able to exercise. And also, frankly, the pluck of a lot of other women lower down the social ladder who, within their own more constrained situations, are also kind of going for it. Mm. So uh, Lydia, the purple seller, leads us on nicely to our next question from Idle Vignette, who has asked what jobs women held in ancient Rome. The short answer is a huge variety, partly because so much of what happens in in Roman trade and commerce is based on family businesses. So, and you have in in some of these these letters that survive from uh, from Egypt, where we've got the more sort of rubbish level of documentation, uh, you can tell that women are playing a wide variety of kinds of roles. Um, but there are, in terms of businesses that where women own their own business, for example, you know, there's a stereotype that a woman's business is going to be something is specifically related to uh, female concerns. But if you stop and think about it, you know, we've got evidence of bakeries, we've got evidence of import-export. Interestingly, a lot of that is in the textile industry. And you do wonder, well, does the fact that women are connected to weaving, does that make a difference? I'm not sure. I think those women would have been making big money, whatever they wanted to do. But it may be that there's, you know, that there's a sort of a connection where they have where they have more subject knowledge in a certain area. My guess is it's probably a matter of what a woman chooses to set up in. If she's setting up a small business of her own, it's probably going to have to do with where she's got contacts. So does she have a cousin? Does she have a brother? Whatever. That's more likely to be what would make a woman choose a certain kind of small business. I think when you're talking about women in employment, I think they're... You know, there's again, there's a sort of stereotype of low status women working as uh, as waitresses in taverns, things like that. Certainly, that's the case. Um, And obviously, you've got, um, you know, you've got things like prostitution that are mostly slave uh, women rather than free women. You know, people who are who are either owned by the brothel keeper themselves or kind of rented to the brothel keeper by somebody else and, and who, by an owner. And that's got to be a terrible situation to be in, no question. Um, so I think the fact that women are, are out there in the economy per- performing a wide variety of roles, in some sense, it's good news in the sense that it shows that women were plucky and capable. On the other, on the other hand, it was a world particularly for low-status women that was really kind of dangerous. Um, strangely, higher-status women, all of those things that we sort of bristle about, all of the ideas that they should be sexually pure and that they should do what their parents and their fathers and their brothers tell them and all of that honor and shame stuff, at one level... It's kind of creepy to us, but at another level, it did offer them a system of protection that that women of respectable families, as they're called, um, could expect that people were afraid to harm them. Whereas, you know, once you go down the lower orders and you're talking about, you know, orphans, slaves, women from very low on the social scale, then you're talking about women who are just really vulnerable. The next couple of questions we have, I expect might have a fairly short answer, but I might possibly be wrong there. So we'll find out. But Rob on Instagram and Brendan as well. They've asked about whether women had any involvement in the army on the one hand and Rome's governance on the other hand. 
Where women in the army are concerned, there are three answers. One is you do have the case of private militias where a woman, Fulvia, for example, um, in the first century BC, you know, has her own army because she's the one paying the soldiers. The second case is you've got uh, people like Boudicca um, in, you know, in Roman Britain, who uh, there's no reason to think that the stories about Boudicca leading her army aren't true. Out in the provinces, um, there's more likelihood of meeting women as as leaders of a command. Uh, then the third thing, and probably the most important thing, is even though up until the second century, Roman soldiers aren't allowed to get married, um, there are two exceptions to that that are really important. One is the commanders can marry, and in some cases bring their wives. And we saw, for example, in the Roman fort at Vindolanda, um, there, there are women attached to the commanding men who there's also, uh, we have cases like a member of the Roman imperial family, Agrippina, for example, who, uh, you know, who accompanies her husband on his command. And, you know, and that's where her, her son becomes so beloved by the, uh, by the army that he gets the nickname Caligula, Little Boots. Uh, so we have those kinds of, of situations. But I think something that's potentially even more important is that there's a huge number of women who are, in a sense, camp followers. Um, and there's a lot of evidence of, of Roman men finding sometimes short-term and sometimes longer-term sexual relationships with women who are originally from the locality, but where it eventually becomes an established relationship. And when the man retires, they, they sometimes marry. Um, and, uh, and there are lots of kinds of jobs in a Roman camp that fit very naturally for either female slaves or for low-status women to be coming in and doing the laundering, you know, doing the cooking, whatever it is. So in, in that sense, there's, um, I think, our understanding of the military encampments is changing and it's starting to recognize more the, the, the sort of invisible presence of women. Where politics is concerned, technically, women shouldn't be involved. Their citizen status doesn't extend to voting. Having said that, there are various ways that women can be involved informally, as it were. Um, certainly, we see cases in the in imperial family. Famously, Livia is constantly represented by the historians as being involved in her husband Augustus's uh, strategic thinking. Uh, but we also have cases in the provinces uh, where inscriptions that are erected in the Roman forum of different, different towns will commemorate a woman who's understood to be a great local benefactress. And in, uh, in some cases, a statue is put up to her and we have the statue base. In other cases, there's just an inscription thanking her for whatever it was she did for her town. In many of the, these cases, what the women are being thanked for is an embassy, for example, f- to the city of Rome to ask for some benefit for the town from the Roman Senate or from the imperial um, for, from the imperial government. So, in that sense, women are advocating for their towns within the wider system, and that means that when you go back into the town itself. 
those women are going to be people of power, even if they're not technically on the town council. They may be the person you go to when you've got a dispute that needs to be settled and get everybody, you know, back in order. Or they may be the person who has the final say and the husband or the son is going to go ask her before he votes. So there are lots of ways in which informally women would find themselves playing a role, but it's probably only in pretty special circumstances. Moving on from the army and politics to the world of religion, Tom Gallant has asked whether you could tell us a bit about the Vestal Virgins specifically, but I wonder if you could broaden that out a little bit to talk about women's role in religion. The Vestal Virgins are super interesting because Vesta, the goddess at whose temple they worship, is the goddess of the hearth And that is traditionally the role of the daughter in a Roman household. It's the daughter who tends the hearth and keeps sure that the fire doesn't go out. So the idea that the daughter goddess, who's the goddess of the hearth, is in a sense the the goddess of fertility in Rome is really quite significant. And it's also significant that the people who are her priestesses are female, and they are, um, during the period of their priesthood, they're virgins. Technically, to be a Vestal Virgin, you uh, you spend 10 years preparing and then 10 years being in the main group of, of priestesses, and then 10 years being one of the elders who trains the next generation. So it's a 30-year commitment. And during those 30 years, you're expected to, uh, to maintain your virginity. It's like a kind of being a nun that is, uh, except that it's temporary, and virgins do go on to marry, you know, in their late 30s or their 40s, which is quite interesting. Um, usually they're, they're post-reproductive at that point. It's rare to have the child of a Vestal Virgin. But something that's interestingly both similar and different to, to Christian nuns is that in the case of the Vestals, it's very explicitly about the fertility of the land and the fertility of the Roman project. You know, the idea that new Romans will be born and they'll grow up to become Roman soldiers, you know. And, and this connection between virginity and fertility is so interesting. Christian virgins, I think if you scratch the surface, you might find some similar ideas, but the way it developed over time sort of pulled a little bit away from that ideology of fertility, I think. Thinking about women and religion more broadly, I think something that might surprise modern listeners is that women didn't, on the whole, have a one-for-one relationship that the women worshipped goddesses while the men worshipped male gods. It's much more mixed. There were some things where women could be perceived anyway to have a distinctive attitude. And some Roman male writers, for example, think that women are more susceptible to to magic and superstition. Uh, But on the other hand, I think there's a a division in Roman religion between domestic religion, the cult of the lares or the domestic gods, and the kind of great cults that are that are in the great civic festivals. And in many ways, I think women played a more complicated and mixed role in those great civic festivals than we might 
imagine from modern religions such as Christianity and Judaism that up until very recently really were very, very limiting in what they allowed women to do. I think Roman religion allowed a much wider variety of involvement for women. That was Professor Kate Cooper of Royal Holloway University of London. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 